Is motherhood valuable? That question is rooted in an even deeper question. Is humanity valuable? Three influential thinkers brought about a revolution in our modern conception of humanity. Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud were naturalists who denied humans were image bearers of God and whose lives have a distinct calling and purpose. According to Darwin, humans are products of deterministic, biological, mutational forces over millions of years with no distinct end or outcome in mind. According to Marx, humans are products of deterministic socioeconomic forces over which they have no control. And according to Freud, humans are products of deterministic subconscious psychological forces that determine their character and their behavior. This unholy trinity of Darwin, Marx, and Freud, widely considered the three most revolutionary thinkers in the modern world, came to view humans as little more than byproducts of their environments. And certainly there is no life value beyond the grave. Naturalism leads us, leaves us with just two possibilities. First of all, humans are animals. Or secondly, humans are machines, highly complex machines. It was the atheist German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who recognized the implications of Darwinism. He wrote, you have made your way from worm to man once you were apes. And even yet man is more of an ape than any ape. I beseech you, my brothers, remain true to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of other worldly hopes. They are poison mixers, whether they know it or not. They are despisers of life, themselves of the cane and the poisoned, of whom the earth is weary. So away with them. Once a sin against God was the greatest sin, but God died. The sin against the earth is now the most dreadful sin. They are highly evolved animals. There's no life beyond the grave. In 2005, the London Zoo opened a four-day primate exhibit featuring Homo sapiens, eight human volunteers. The zoo issued a communique declaring the exhibit was, quote, to highlight the spread of man as a plague species. A zoo spokesperson exclaimed, seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches members of the public that that the human is just another primate. One of the eight volunteers, a 26-year-old chemist, explained his motive for participation. Quote, a lot of people think humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds us that we are not special. Others insist that humans are machines. In 1747, Julien Offre de Lemaitre a materialist and French Enlightenment philosopher published a provocative work called Man the Machine, 
absolving humans of all moral responsibility. He argued that adultery and even theft were, quote, slight defects in humanity because, in his own words, I seriously believe them to be machines. Two centuries later, Francis Crick, the Nobel Prize-winning co-discoverer of a double helix model of DNA published of molecules in men, Crick argued that men are nothing more than atoms in motion. And Crick called for, quote, scientific values to replace traditional Christian values and give new answers to vital questions like, who are we? Well, if humans are animals or humans are machines, then what is a mother? And what is a child? Francis Crick stated, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment, and that if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to life. That's a newborn forfeiting the right to life. And on February 25th, 2019, The United States Senate failed to garner enough votes to protect the lives of children born alive after an attempted abortion. Forty-four U.S. senators voted against, against a bill banning infanticide. Certainly our culture has been shaped by godless historical forces that have radically undermined a biblical view of humanity and consequently, a biblical view of the value of motherhood. So what I want to know today is what does the Bible have to say about all this? And let's go to the first chapter, and let's discover the answer. Let's go to Genesis 1 and verse 26. It seems that we turn to Genesis 1 a couple times a year. It's so foundational to everything else in Scripture. After narrating God's creation of a world teeming with life, the Bible's first chapter climaxes with a conversation among members of the Holy Trinity. And God proclaims in verse 26 His intention to create a final creature in our image. And after our likeness, notice how God uses first-person plural pronouns. God is not a force. God is not an evolutionary process. God is a plurality of persons. And if God is going to make people in His own image, He will create persons. Now, before the Incarnation, God does not have a body. So when God makes human persons in His own image, personhood must involve more than merely our human bodies. The Scripture assumes the existence of an immaterial aspect of our humanity, It speaks of our souls, not merely our bodies. Our minds, not merely our brains. 
We, friends, are more than atoms. We are more than mutations. We are more than electrical currents firing through the atoms and the synapses in our brains. We are neither animals nor machines. We were image bearers of God even before God assumed atoms in His incarnation. Now, verse 27 records God's crowning act of creation. So, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female, He created them. To define humanity, you must begin right here where God begins. The moment that you just dismiss verse 27, your whole conception of humanity will change. You strip away the image of God and man, you strip away any sound basis for morality and any justification for human dignity and purpose. Defining humanity without reference to God always ends in absurdity, and you don't have to take my word for that. You can read countless numbers of philosophers and scientists who actually admit this. Nicholas Humphrey, a Cambridge psychologist who embraces the notion that we are nothing more than machines, has said, our starting assumption, not that we're image bearers of God, our starting assumption is this, on some level, consciousness has to be an illusion. Consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. So what then, friends, is the image of God? Is that some sort of abstract theological con- construct that theologians just debate through the centuries and never really land? If we're supposed to understand ourselves as God's image bearers, how really can we do that if we don't really understand the term? Well, let's hold on to that question for now. What is an image bearer? What is the image of God? Hold on to that question because the Genesis account does not answer it. But let's read on and let's discover the first task that image bearers are supposed to accomplish. It's found in verse 28. Here's God's first command to humans. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God intends for humans to reproduce themselves. And that will not happen if you do not value motherhood. Now, of course, this does not imply that a woman who fails to have children or even to marry is somehow a failure. Not at all. Other scriptures speak to the value of singleness in God's economy. But observe that God's first command to image bearers was indeed to multiply themselves. And now we have two questions. What is the image of God? And secondly, why should we multiply image bearers? And observe also that the command to multiply the image bearers was never rescinded after the fall. When Noah walked off the ark in a post-apocalyptic world, God 
repeated the command. In fact, part of our job is to go exercise dominion, and that becomes even more challenging in a fallen world, but we still have to do it. And God repeated that command to Noah, go reproduce. When the Egyptian pharaoh attempted to disrupt the procreation of the Hebrew, mid- Hebrew mothers and drowned their children in the Nile, God, as you recall, turned his sacred river to blood, like the blood of Abel calling from the ground into which it was drained. Think of that, a whole river, a river of blood calling out to God. Procreation, friends, is an indispensable requirement of the Adamic, Noachian, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants. When God establishes covenants with individuals, His intentions always expand well beyond that individual. God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's assuming human productivity. But there's more. The Creator not only insists on procreation, the Bible actually views Him as creating through human procreation. God did not stop creating at the close of the creation week. Let me turn to two passages, and I'll just show this to you. First of all, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And let's discover how God continues to create after the creation week. In 1 Samuel 1, we have the well-known account of a woman named Hannah who was barren. Her husband, Elkanah, loved her. And Elkanah was married to two women. The second wife deliberately irritated Hannah for her barrenness. But it's clear as the account unfolds that God is sovereign. In the second half of verse 5, we read, The Lord had closed her womb. That was God's doing. And verse 6 relates Hannah's distress. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And verse 7 tells us this source of grievance went on for a long time. And in fact, it was so stressful that Hannah stopped eating. Verse 7, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, of course, we know the outcome. Hannah sought the Lord, and the Lord answered. And then Hannah dedicated her son to the Lord in the words of verse 11, all the days of his life. But would you notice just how delicately, but also how clearly, the Bible speaks to the intersection of human initiative 
and divine sovereignty. Middle of verse 19. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Again, notice the intersection of human initiative and divine sovereignty. The Lord is sovereign over birth. Friends, the Lord put that child in Hannah's womb. And Hannah certainly understood this because in chapter 2 and verse 6, she prays the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And curiously, Hannah seems to be pointing forward to the new birth. We don't know how well she understood that. But the resurrection from Sheol is the resurrection from the dead. So, in fact, Hannah's prayer points well beyond the birth of even Samuel, her son, ultimately to the resurrection of the new creation. Now, in the end, Hannah conceived several more children. Look at verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And we know that Samuel was singled out for a special mission for Yahweh. But God clearly was not done with Hannah after Samuel. Don't assume that Samuel was some sort of sovereignly ordained special child, but the siblings over here were just ordinary byproducts of nature, not at all. Verse 20 is very clear. The Lord sovereignly answered Hannah's prayer for each of her six children. God is sovereign over human procreation. And God's sovereignty, of course, extends well beyond conception. God is, in fact, creator and sovereign over the entire birth process. Let me show you this by turning to a second passage. Let's turn to Psalm 139. This is a passage that I preached on several years ago. And the topic that I was addressing at that point was abortion. It's really not my purpose this morning to take on the issue of abortion, but this really is one of the most important passages from a Christian perspective to help us think through the issue of what's happening inside the mother's womb. Psalm 139. This is a passage that celebrates God's ongoing work of creation. David will here describe his formation in his mother's womb. And it's curious to read the interchange between David and his creator. Let's begin with verse 13. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Let me just pause right there for just a moment. I am wonderfully made. If you have not had a chance to really think through or read about human DNA and RNA and all that's involved, I had a long conversation with Lee Seared on Wednesday night. I wanted to know all about this. And the more I learn about this, it's just amazing how incredibly, wonderfully made we truly are. So don't flood Lee's inbox. But it really is just absolutely astonishing with the revolution in our modern understanding of genetics and DNA and RNA and all the rest. How extraordinarily well-made human beings are. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And we ought to know it really, really well because God has given us a great tool in science to really understand our human bodies. All right, let's keep going. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was, there was none of them. Now, would you just quickly observe four critical features of this passage? First, David's use of personal pronouns implies the humanness or personhood of his fetus. David uses terms like I and my and me. He is no mere parasite lodged in his mother's womb as some pro-choice advocates insist. Second, in verse 16, David views himself as human even when his condition was, quote, unformed substance. Now, David, of course, knew nothing of modern embryology, but David does write under inspiration. And the Holy Spirit certainly understood modern embryology, in fact, ancient embryology. The text implies that even during the earliest stages of pregnancy, before a detectable heartbeat or brain function, when he was still unformed substance, David viewed himself as a human being made by God. Did you know that all the genetic information that goes into making you who you are is right there in that initial cell at the moment of conception? There is no new information added after conception. None. When you are still an unformed substance, God knows you. In fact, Jeremiah says, even before I was in the womb, God knew me. Thirdly, in verse 15, David metaphorically compares a mother's womb to, quote, the depths of the earth, where David says, I was being made in secret, intricately woven. The metaphor is an obvious allusion to the creation account where God breathed into the dust of the earth a living soul. The creator formed David just as he formed Adam. 
We sometimes speak as if God created Adam and Eve, but nature's just taking care of the rest of us. Well, David's metaphor views himself as a unique, creative act of God. You made me in my mother's womb the way you made Adam, from the hollow and the dust of the earth. And fourthly, David views the whole pregnancy process as a creative act of God. He uses three important verbs. You formed, you knitted, and I was being made. Christians sometimes conclude that God works by miracles, but nature takes care of everything else. That's not biblical. When God works quickly, call it a miracle. And when God works slowly through natural processes, call it providence. It's all the work of God. God did indeed make Adam quickly. But you are no less special to God because he took his time with you. You are no less special to God because he developed your eyesight through 40 weeks in your mother's womb than the blind man whom he healed instantly. God takes his time with you. Now, friends, when you put these four points together, the psalm speaks of the humanity of fetal life, the personhood of the fetus. Again, this is not a sermon on abortion, although I feel like just really preaching that. But I will say this. Abortion doesn't merely stop a beating heart. Abortion is a violent termination of the Creator's work. You might as well plunge a dagger into the heart of Adam from the moment that God created him. You are violently terminating the work of the Creator. So yes, indeed, the Bible insists on God's sovereignty over human procreation from conception through birth. And that alone suggests that motherhood is supremely valuable. And now let's turn to Romans 8, and let's finally get some answers to the, first, the, two, the two questions that I raised earlier. Romans 8, and here are the questions. What is the image of God? And why should it be multiplied? And turning to Romans 8, we are passing over four Gospels which tell the wonderful story of the incarnation of the second member of the Trinity in human flesh. We're passing of the story of the conception of Jesus of Nazareth. And the story of his resurrection in the same body that emerged from Mary's womb. A body in the resurrection accounts that we're told consists of flesh and bones and breath. Those are the three cardinal elements of your humanity that you find in the Genesis accounts. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And of Eve, he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And when you look at Luke and John's accounts of the resurrection, you've got all three. You've got flesh and bones and breath. 
That body has come back to life. So friends, we are passing over the Gospels, but let me just say this. The virginal conception of Jesus Christ, His experience of human sorrow and suffering, His vicarious atonement, and His sacrificial death on a cruel instrument of torture demonstrate compellingly that the Creator truly values human life. But the Creator's love for humanity is not merely temporal. It is eternal. In the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, God permanently assumed the human condition that He first received in the virginal conception. There can be no more dramatic testimony to the value that God places on human life than the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. God took a body and He kept it forever. I had a graduating senior write me a note this week. And he said, you made that statement in class and it changed my whole life. It changed how I view everything. God took a body and he kept it forever. According to Romans 6, in raising Jesus from the grave, God was, in fact, raising humanity from the grave. Now, we come to Romans 8. And let's recall the term image of God was never defined in Genesis. It includes our personhood, of course, because God is a person. And certainly it involves our capacity to exercise dominion because that's what we're supposed to do. But what exactly is a person created in God's image supposed to look like? What is God's ideal for humanity? If you begin at Genesis and go looking for an answer, it's going to be a very long time before you find it. The concept does not resurface until you come to Romans 8 and verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, get this, to the image of his son. There at long last is the image again. And there is no difference between the image of God and the image of the Son. We know that because the Son is God. Jesus is the perfect expression of God. As Hebrew puts it, the exact representation of His character. Jesus is identical to God. If God the Father came in a human body, it would look just like Jesus. But friends, Jesus is also the perfect expression of humanity. Both what it's supposed to look like in a fallen world in His first coming and in the new creation in His resurrection. Jesus is the perfect ideal of what a human made in the image and likeness of God is supposed to look like. Jesus is the very definition and the perfect image of God. Ever since Adam fell in the garden, we have no further examples of what a perfect expression of an image bearer of God is supposed to look like. It's no wonder the scriptures are silent on the topic. I mean, who can you point to? But Jesus changes everything. We now have a perfect expression of the image and likeness of God that every one of us should conform to. 
And notice Paul's words, word for new. David and Jeremiah spoke of God for knowing them even in the mother's womb or before. Paul here also speaks of being foreknown by God. And I will not dissect that term at this point other than to ask this question. What is the outcome of God's foreknowledge? What is the outcome? When God foreknows the believer, he predestines them. The word means to map out their horizons. He predestines them for some great outcome. Well, what outcome? Here's the outcome, to be conformed to an image, the image of the sun. That's on your horizon. That's your destiny. That's the outcome, to look like Christ. God foreknows us in order to restore us to the image of a perfect human being. We are restored to the image of the resurrected Jesus Christ. We were created in the image of God, and we are restored into the image of God, a perfect human being. So friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example, definition, outcome, description of the image of God. If you want to understand the term image of God, then look no further than Jesus of Nazareth. And now let's address our second question. Why should the image of God be multiplied? Recall what God told those first image bearers. Be fruitful, multiply. But why? Where is this all going? Why is the multiplication of image bearers so important to God? Well, if you just keep reading the second half of the verse, you'll see it. Verse 29, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The image of God should be multiplied so that Jesus Christ will have a whole family of image bearers. Jesus is, in fact, resurrecting a whole global family of brothers and sisters to sing God's praises and to reflect His image for all eternity. That's ultimately why we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And that's why when God makes these covenants with people like Abraham, He keeps saying it. I want children. I want a whole family of children so that Jesus of Nazareth will have a whole family of brothers and sisters to bear the image and likeness of God. Now, when you answer those two questions biblically, you discover how revolutionary the Christian view of life is from the surrounding materialistic godless culture that reduces humans to animals and to machines. What is a person? An image bearer of God. And why should we multiply image bearers? So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And when you answer those two questions biblically, you can now answer the first question. Is motherhood valuable? Motherhood is supremely valuable. 
And we could say the same for our fathers and fatherhood. Yes, we are preparing our kids for a future vocation. That's important. We are preparing our kids for future marriage or for singleness. We are preparing our kids to live responsibly in society. We are preparing our kids, hopefully, for future work and labor in the church. We are teaching them morality and integrity and manners to reflect the gospel. But what is it that really makes motherhood supremely valuable in a world that reduces humans to animals, in a world that defines success by money, in a world that defines success by fame and fortune? How are we supposed to think about motherhood? Motherhood is ultimately about raising brothers and sisters for Jesus Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And mothers, we know, are uniquely gifted to nurture and sustain and guide those tender shoots of life that emerge from the womb. And in the all-wise providence of God, he gave to his son a human mother, And we all know that a Christian mother has the capacity to shape the emotional and spiritual life of her children at a very profound level, at a very deep level. And the Gospels are clear that Mary was intimately involved in the life of her son right up until his final bitter moments on the cross when a sword pierced her heart. Mothers are uniquely gifted to create in their children an affection for God and an affection for what is good and holy and just. And by the way, God is an emotional being. Don't view emotions as some sort of female vice as people tend to do at times. God is an emotional being. And God values the emotional life of children that can really be shaped by their mothers. Most importantly, a mother has a profound opportunity and privilege to really nurture the process of transforming little humans into adult brothers and sisters of Jesus. Think of it this way. Mary raised the Son of God. And your job description, mothers, is to raise his brothers and sisters. Right there inside your womb is where the Creator begins His work of creating His brothers and sisters. Mothers, this is your job description. Verse 29, raise children in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And fathers, that goes for you too. And let's turn now, finally, to Matthew 25. And let me just really encourage our mothers in your job description, because sometimes it gets really challenging. When you're in the thick of it raising children, it can be exhausting. It can be wearisome. And those little fallen image bearers Yes, those little fallen image bearers can really wear you out. 
believe me, I know, I go to work, so get away from it all, only my wife, you know. Okay. I shouldn't say this, but sometimes I, you know, you ever read Dostoevsky? He wondered on one occasion whether men were actually made in the image of the devil and not the image of God. Well, I mean, you look around at our fallenness and you kind of wonder. Well, Matthew 25 is very encouraging. It describes the Son of Man coming in glory at the end of the world to judge the nations. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And notice these words. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, an orphan. And you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, notice this, to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, let me quickly deal with a hermeneutical challenge, lest it become a stumbling block. In verses 35 through 36, Jesus identifies six acts of benevolence that the sheep, those are his disciples, engage in. Number one, they fed the hungry. Number two, they gave drink to the thirsty. Number three, they ministered to the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee, the orphan. Number four, they clothed the naked. Five, they visited the sick. And six, they visited the prisoner. But would you notice how the word for at the beginning of verse 35 associate those works with those who inherit the kingdom in verse 34? So is Jesus teaching salvation by works? We have to do these six things in order to get into the kingdom. Paul argues that eternal life is not due to any personal works. It depends on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. So what's going on here? Well, I really wish I could take a lot of time with this, but let me just give you two reasons why Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. First of all, Jesus does not speak of the means by which a person is born again. It's not what he's talking about in this context. Rather, he is speaking of rewards at the end of the world. And God does indeed reward believers for the works they do in his name, through the Spirit, of course, 
but he does not justify them on the basis of those works. You are going to be rewarded for the good things you do through Christ, but you're not justified on the basis of those works. And second, an underlying assumption of the passage is that Jesus speaks of works produced by believing people subsequent to salvation. And let me give you three sub-points. First of all, notice how Jesus keeps using the personal pronoun I. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. Jesus identifies with the recipients of benevolence because he indwells them. In other words, the context points to actions happening inside the regenerated family of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage in acts of benevolence for lost people. But in this case, he's talking about the things that we do for each other. Second, in verse 40, Jesus uses the term brothers. Again, to describe works produced inside the regenerated family of Jesus. And this indeed is completely compatible with Paul. Paul told the Ephesian believers, we are in fact created in Christ Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. We are created in him to do good works. If you've been regenerated, you're supposed to go do good works. That's what's going on here. And thirdly, verses 37 through 39 clearly point to humble believers who are not relying on their works for salvation. Many people, like the rich young ruler, came to Jesus just pompously flaunting all of their law-keeping. Well, I've done it all. Look at me. I've done all these things. Let me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, no way. But think about these people in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Well, clearly that's a person who isn't keeping a pious record of all of his good deeds to present to God. He is so characterized by poverty of spirit that he's got nothing to flaunt before God. All right, so clearly Jesus is not teaching work salvation. Now, when you put all this together then, who are the sheep? The sheep are the followers of Jesus Christ whose lives have been transformed. They are not justified by works, but they go out and they do the very things that we find in verses 35 and 36. They go out and they engage in these activities. They are not justified by works, not at all. But here's what's so delightful. They are rewarded for their works. This is the beauty. Christ redeems you, does everything on your behalf, and rewards you for the works that he produces in you. It's astonishing grace. And pay very careful attention to the language of verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly, I say it to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And he's pointing to the children, the little ones. Jesus refers to little children often, and Matthew in particular really points this out. Throughout his gospel, Matthew recalls many things that Jesus said concerning children. It's Matthew who tells us a good father gives his children bread and not stone. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus watched children playing their games in the marketplace with real interest. When Jesus fed the multitudes, he fed the children also. In Matthew 18, we have a record of Jesus' severe condemnation for anyone who abuses a child. He has a zero-tolerance policy for child abuse. And in Matthew 19, Jesus will lay hands on the little children. So Matthew makes it really, really clear that Jesus cares very, very deeply for children. With that in mind, let's just connect then two core ideas. First of all, Jesus has a profound interest in children. And secondly, Jesus the judge does not miss a single cup of water given in his name. He doesn't miss a single meal prepared in his name. Mothers, how many of you get tired of the evening meal? I, I, I try to cook too, and my kids get really tired of it really fast. It wears you out. It's like, is it five o'clock? Oh, here we go again. Jesus does not miss you clothing a person in his name. I mean, the kids just grow right out of their clothes. The pants just shoot right up their legs. You're like, I got to go do this all over again. You're worn out. Some of you mothers have adopted or fostered the orphan in Jesus' name, and Jesus notices. He notices every little detail. Isn't it remarkable, mothers, how these six activities in verses 35 through 36 that are singled out for reward are directly associated with motherhood. In fact, five of the six really are directly associated with motherhood. How many times have you fed and clothed and cared for Jesus' little brothers and his little sisters? And again, how wearisome can it become but mothers, would you just think for a moment about how Jesus, too, wearied, grew very weary through those long days of ministry? But Jesus notices every little cup of water given in his name. And how often have you given a cup of water to one of your little children? I mean, how often? How many times a day in between cleaning it up when it spills? All those seemingly mundane activities, those are the activities that Jesus notices here in Matthew 25. I've always found Matthew 25 just supreme in its application for mothers. So mothers, on this very special day, can I just ask you to take Jesus' words of encouragement and it's a special promise for you. Verse 40. Truly I say to you, mothers, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So raise your little children as if Jesus was being raised in your home by Mary. You are, in fact, raising the brothers and the sisters of Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for our mother's we thank you for the influence of mothers in our own lives. Many of us have very fond memories of things that our mothers did and sayings they had 
emphases, Lord, that really shaped who we are today. We pray this day would be very, very special for our mothers. We pray for those who are still engaged in raising children even now. The days are long and weary. Some come home from long days of work and have much to attend to around the home. Some are dealing with children with special needs, medical appointments, special challenges, learning challenges. Father, we pray that you would give our mothers just supreme grace and strength. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you are at work in the womb. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our women who desire to have children. And that, Lord, if it be your will, that you would allow our mothers, who our women who so desire it, to raise little children, to dedicate them to you, that they might become brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would bless our single women who have had such a profound influence on our children, Lord. We have women, Lord, that have for many, many, many years been a help and a blessing to hundreds of young ladies that have come to this church. We thank you, Lord, just as the Apostle Paul had many sons in the faith. We thank you for the daughters in the faith that you have given to some of our women, Lord, and the profound influence that they've had in their lives. And Father, we pray for our world, for our culture. Lord, we think of women today that will get in the car and will make their way to an abortion clinic. And Father, we pray that you would put Christians in their lives. And Lord, they would consider what they're doing. Lord, we do not look to the Supreme Court. We do not look to Congress. We do not look to an act of legislation. Lord, we look to your spirit to truly regenerate the hearts of men and women to think biblically about what is happening inside the womb of the mother. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move and draw women to you who have had abortions, women who are even now contemplating abortion, and that, Lord, through this tragedy, through the sorrow, that they've experienced, Lord, that they would be drawn to the wonderful gift of the Creator who grants eternal life. And the words of Hannah, who raises us up from Sheol. And Father, we pray that you would raise the spirits of women who have had abortion and men who are equally culpable, and that you might turn people to righteousness. Because, Lord, we desire that your son will be praised on this earth. And we desire that your son will be praised in the new world to come. 
And it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.